Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kira Mulvaney. We are in week what, eight, nine or so at this point of the new normal. Uh, we are now at the stage at which the populace is so starved for sporting content that five seconds of footage of 53-year-old Mike Tyson hitting the pads has led to a stampede of speculation about his making a comeback. And to be fair to Mike, while well, he has said that working out during quarantine has made him, quote, feel unstoppable, um, <laughs> he's talking in terms of doing maybe four-round exhibitions for charity, which, good for him. Um, but that hasn't stopped any number of wannabe opponents throwing challenges at his feet. Uh, and perhaps most prominent of those challenges that I've seen, Big John Fury, father of a son named after Iron Mike. Yes, we are now at the point where a 50-something former world champion who was suspended for biting an opponent's ear is being challenged by the present champion's 50-something father who was imprisoned for gouging someone's eye. So once again, quote Jim Brockmeyer, dark times, dark, dark, dark times. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised the clip of Tyson caught fire. You know, there's always been something irresistible about watching him throw punches. Uh, but it's amazing how quickly everyone forgets what happens when there are punches coming back at him. Uh, <laughs> nobody brings out the ignorant boxing non-fans quite like Tyson. Uh, I had an old friend text me and ask if Tyson is really going to fight again. And he could probably still beat a lot of these guys, right? And you just want to shake these people and be like, go look up his fight against Kevin McBride. That was 15 years ago. Um, but here we are. Like you said, people are starved for sporting content and the media is starved for content to fill their quotas. Uh, present company included, by the way. Uh, so ex-champ hits pads is a story yep. in 2020. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd mock it all a lot more, but... Uh, a month from now, we might be doing an episode ranking the top 10 displays of pad punching in boxing history, so I better go easy on this. Makes notes for future, future <laughs> episodes. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, indeed. So, uh, and of course, we are spending our time looking back at, you know, fights that have taken place in the past because we have nothing immediately to look forward to. You might have noticed by now, if you've been paying attention, and by you, I don't mean you, Eric, I mean the listeners. I'm <laughs> yes, I've figured. been paying attention. You, you figured it out, yes. Yeah. Uh, we've been building our main podcast topics this month around those classic fights that Showtime is replaying every Friday night. So this week on the pod, because Showtime will next be re-airing Floyd Mayweather versus Marcus Maidana 1, followed by Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor, Eric and I will be doing a deep dive on the career of, you guessed it, Connor, nah, just kidding. Floyd Mayweather. Um, with a particular focus on those two fights. Uh, and we're going to continue a run of outstanding guests on the podcast. We have hit a hot streak of late. Uh, Derek James two weeks ago. Joseph Parker last week. Uh, this week, we have the writer who covered Floyd Mayweather longer and more closely than anyone, David Mayo, who will join us to share some Floyd insights and stories that nobody else can provide. And we have some news to cover at the end of the pod. And a lot of that news is deeply depressing. Because hashtag 2020. <laughs> yeah, 2020 continues to be an absolute bastard. Uh, <laughs> but we'll start on a lighter note. Uh, Kieran and I are doing our part to save lives every day by staying home and not breathing on people outside our bubbles. And that means we're still both watching TV and movies. So, Kieran, other than the Monzone series, which we'll discuss mm -hmm. shortly, what you've been watching this week? Um, a few things. A classic movie in the broadest definition of the sense of a classic movie, as you'll soon find out, a series finale and a season finale. Um, so the quote-unquote classic movie 
I was channel surfing and stumbled across Predator. And I'm telling you, man, <laughs> I will watch that movie anytime I come across Predator. Uh, it is easy and unchallenging. It is short on dialogue. I'm convinced that it, as everybody involved is completely self-aware and in on all the obvious jokes, you know, from the inherent homoeroticism when Arnold and Carl Weathers grasp hands while flexing sweaty biceps <laughs> to the cliched 80s mercenary action and dialogue. Um, and I really do believe that in its own way, it has some really subversive elements. Um, we never get to find out why the Predator does why he does. He just does it until, of course, the sequels come along 20 years later and ruin it all. Um, and I do watch it with a little bit of a different eye now, because since I first started uh, watching it, uh, I've become friends with Tyrell Ventura, who is Jesse Ventura's son. Oh. And it's quite funny. Well, he once told me, because, yeah, he goes, I love that movie, but... It really messes you up as a kid when you're watching a movie and your dad gets <laughs> blown up by an alien death ray. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a Jesse Ventura thing to put six-year-old Tyrell in front of the movies and, and have, him, have that happen. So. Right. so that was my movie. I love Predator. I don't care. I'm not, I'm not even embarrassed to say it. You know, I, I have not seen any of the sequels, and that sounds like a good thing. Um, okay. And I haven't seen the original in a very long time. Uh, my, I'm just about ready to uh, to get my son rolling on the whole Arnold catalog. We've dipped a toe. Uh, he's seen the Terminator movies okay. and what else? Uh, the Running Man. Um, okay. But some of the some of the more violent and and or racier ones uh, we haven't gotten to yet. But pretty soon, I was thinking we might kind of try and take them in order, which would mean and skipping the Conan movies. Who cares about those? So okay. I was I was going to get into I was going to line up Commando uh, soon, and so Predator uh, shouldn't be too far after that. I'm I'm be curious to see. Hopefully, it won't affect him as badly as it affects Tyrell Ventura. <laughs> he's not six. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's ten. And uh, and as he reminds me every time we discuss showing something with some inappropriate content, he reminds me that at about age six or seven, I let him watch Die Hard, which was rated R. So uh, okay. you know, so so nothing nothing can hurt him. Uh, Die Hard Christmas movie, yes or no? Very quickly. Uh, I I say no. Okay. It it yeah it takes place at Christmas time and there are some Christmas things but no I'm gonna say not a Christmas movie. If we don't have live sports by December, <laughs> the violence involved in those Christmas or not Christmas movie or not discussions is gonna go through the roof. I'm telling you this year. <laughs> so. True. Um, so to TV, uh, the series finale, and I suspect you also watched this, uh, was Brockmire. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked about this before briefly. I quite enjoyed this final season. I wasn't much of a fan of the finale, um, which I thought kept the focus too far off Brockmire himself until the very end. I did like that that final scene. Um, did you have you watched it yet? Any thoughts? Yeah, uh, and this was on on my list of things that I was uh, going to mention. I watched this week, so I may as well uh, respond right now. That yeah, kind of thought the finale was meh and. I realized during it that part of my failure to engage with the final season is that they wrote baseball out of it uh, and yeah. even made a point, especially in the finale of hammering home how nobody likes baseball. <laughs> uh, when the fact is I love baseball. And so I thought the show was at its best when baseball was a big part of it and Brockmeyer was drunk uh, and we, we didn't really get those things uh, this season. So yeah, I still found the whole final season kind of disappointing and the finale didn't do much for me. Yeah, but, but I think, you know, four seasons, I'm not, I'm okay that I, I watched it. I feel they took a funny or die character about as far as they could. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it was fine. Um, however, now we go to the season finale. <sighs> and here I must pause, sigh, and pour a 40 to the curve for what was once a wonderful show. I adored the first season of Westworld. Absolutely adored it. And although I was not, I think, in the majority, I adored the second season. 
which makes this past season for me all the more difficult to take. I mean, there were a couple of times when I thought it was about to jolt back into life, but it just became steadily more disappointing. Horrible plot holes, sloppy writing. It really pains me to say this because I loved Westworld. But it is now cliched boilerplate science fiction saved only by good acting and high production values. And, and it exists now solely to tease the prospect of a new surprise behind the next door. Right. And oh, I'm so, so disappointed. And it leaves me desperately hoping that Watchmen remains a one and done enterprise because emotionally I'm not going to be able to handle eventually having to feel the same way about Watchmen that I do know about Westworld. Have you watched this season? Uh, I started it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I cut that cord uh, after two episodes or two and part of the third. I can't remember exactly. Um, I thought about toughing it out just for the Aaron Paul of it all, but right. I, I, I just couldn't get into it. I just couldn't care. I didn't like the second season nearly as much as you did, although I thought yeah. it was okay. But yeah, I thought the first season was pretty good. Not not great, but pretty good. But yeah, it just went steadily downhill until I was done with it. And uh yeah, this is uh, file this under uh, discussions we would not be having uh, on the old HBO podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but here we can talk about how how far Westworld has fallen. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, in terms of stuff that, that I've been watching, not the Westworld season finale, but uh, the Brockmeyer finale, I did, and then uh, other things. My wife and I are halfway through the third season of Fauda, that Israeli show I mentioned right. two weeks yeah. ago, uh, and it's it's really heating up. Uh, good good stuff there. I watched Jerry Seinfeld's Netflix special, uh, which which was very good. I've never been a huge fan of his stand-up. Um, I, I think Seinfeld, the sitcom, was the best comedy show ever, and it isn't close in my mind. But Jerry's stand-up, I've always been kind of lukewarm on it, but this was really good. Older, crankier Jerry works for me. Um, so I, I would check that out. Uh, and uh, And lastly, we did one family movie night this week. We watched 1992's A League of Their Own, which uh, oh, excellent. Yeah, helped fill the no baseball hole in my heart. Right. Uh, and uh, just a good, solid movie for people of all ages. Um, I guess I, I probably would have been a pretty crappy co-host for Roger Ebert because I really have no further analysis other than good, solid, you know, good cast, hard movie not to like. Uh, like You'll never hear anyone say, oh, I hated A League of Their Own. Yeah. Um, but uh, There was no crying while watching it, I hope. <laughs> there, there was not, although... I will say the power of sweeping orchestral music was on full display because in the <laughs> final scene where all the old lady versions are, are gathering at, at the Hall of Fame, I wasn't like that in, uh, deeply committed to the characters. I, I, I didn't have some connection, really. I didn't re- right. care that much. And then the sweeping orchestral music comes up <laughs> and, I, and I got a little lump in my throat. But no, there was no crying uh, when watching uh, a movie about women's baseball. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, moving on to uh, another thing besides the Brockmire finale that both of us watched. Uh, we have now watched episodes 9 through 11 of Monzon, uh, or episodes 9 and 10 of Monzon, and episode Indeed. 11 of a different series called Muniz. Uh, Kieran, what did you think of these episodes? Um, so we've apparently seen the last of the young Monzon. Um, the boxing career is all wrapped up, um, and we've seen that the final two episodes, 12 and 13, are going to focus solely on the murder investigation and ultimate trial. Um, I quite enjoyed, especially episodes 10 and 11. I thought they were quite evocative. Um, I liked the way that episode 10 sort of took that step back 
and gave us that full wide angle look at the life of Monzon that had led up to that point. And, and I quite like that touch in episode 11. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it focused on Elise Muniz, including, you know, as he alluded to, the opening title being <laughs> Muniz instead of Monzon. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really common feature in true crime that the focus is on the murderer um, or, or the person who did violence, particularly a famous, and we often end up knowing far too little about the victim. So I'm really glad that we got to see who Elise Muniz was and how she came to be in Monzone's orbit and ultimately his life and his home. Um, a few other little things. I'm pretty sure I didn't, I couldn't be bothered to go back and look at it again, but I was pretty sure that the, at least the subtitled version mixed up the dates of the two Rodrigo Valdez fights. Did you notice that? Well, no, it's not, uh, it, it, it's that they played them out of order. And I was going to ask you about that. They seem to present them with the rematch where he did, where Monzon was performed well, and then went back to the first fight where he struggled. And but they presented that as his last fight. It was a bit messed up, really. I don't... I, I were, were they, it was confusing. Yeah, it definitely was. And, and I generally, I just came away like, I knew which fight, was which based because they put the dates on the screen and I was just trying to figure out what the point of them being out of order was and not to mention yeah if, if you didn't really have the boxing knowledge and you didn't really notice the dates it might have been even more confusing yeah it, it was just a strange choice all around there yeah yeah so that that was definitely uh, um, curious I don't know we've talked before about not being aware of how much uh, the fights reflect historical accuracy, but clearly there was a suggestion there that he'd, he'd left Amalcar Brusa at the end of his career. It's that was what I inferred, and yeah. I don't know if that's what you picked up and if that was true or not, and whether that was just for the Rodrigo Valdez fights because he was there at the press conference for one of the Valdez fights. So that was kind of like left out there, and I'm, I have no idea if, if there's truth there or not, and I don't know if you do at all. I don't know. I didn't look it up, but they certainly did give that impression that he yeah. was that he had split from him for the final fight or two of his career. Yeah. Yeah, and and the other thing is, you know, we talked last week about how. You know, we've been talking quite all the way through about the general disagreeableness of the main character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you mentioned how the younger Monzone came across as increasingly objectionable, while the older Monzone seemed to be a bit more sympathetic. After rewinding <laughs> a little bit so that we've now seen more of the older Monzone prior to his jail stint, I'm not sure he's still coming across as quite that little bit sympathetic. Um, no. Yeah, I- I'm a little bit concerned that some ends are going to be end up loose and untied. Are we ever going to find out, unless I missed it, what the actual deal was with the hobo? Are we ever going to find out the full extent of the intersection, if any, between the Monzo Muniz case and the drug case involving the Turk? And it apparently goes all the way up to the highest levels of corruption. I kind of fear that some of that's going to end up unresolved. But I guess we'll see in the final two episodes. Yeah, I guess so. They still have, you know, if these episodes are generally about 45 minutes long and, and an hour and a half or so to resolve what they're going to resolve. So, yeah, I guess we'll we'll know more about that next week. But I, I'm right with you that uh, episode 11, the Muniz episode, w- was really strong. Uh, mm. get, to, to give us the story of and the perspective of a character who is central to the story but had barely been seen to this point, mm. um, I, I thought it was really well done. You know, a, a lot of these series are like one long 10-hour movie or whatever where each Mm. episode blends into the next but most of the very best shows find a way to both tell a serialized story and have the episodes stand on their own to some degree Mm. Uh, like Mad Men was great at this uh, especially in its middle seasons around seasons four and five it could almost feel like it was hopping from one genre to another from one week to the next 
I really like the the breaking of format here from Monzo, and I think the show needed it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. at, at at this point where I found the murder investigation that stuff starting to drag on, and you know, like you said, it seems we're done with the young Carlos. Uh, he was in episode nine, but I guess that was the the last time we saw him. So. Yeah, it was it was it was time to shake it up, and I thought that episode was particularly well done. Um, the couple a couple of other quick uh, observations at at a fight in Vegas a couple of years ago, I met Carlos Arusta, the Argentine journalist who wrote a Monzone biography that came out in okay. 2017, and uh, in episode nine of this, he was playing himself. Uh, oh. So uh, that that was cool. Not not very accurate to have a guy who looks 70 something playing <laughs> a 30 something journalist, but I'll allow it. Um, in uh, in episode ten, there was a big uh, drug montage set to music, and I'm thinking the whole time I'm watching it that like this is really really poor man Scorsese going on here. <laughs> um, it wasn't quite working for me. I've noted this before, but this show uses a lot of footage of the real Monzone. Mm-hmm. And I'm still feeling like I'm more captivated by him than by either of the actors playing him. So so that's a problem. And and the last thing, and and you hit on this. The beatings are really piling up. The beatings of women, uh, and 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 now we have a, a rape or something close to a rape on Monzone's record too. Uh, so yeah, continues that idea that our central character is not an anti-hero. He he's just a pure villain, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, let's turn our attention from a polarizing middleweight great of the 70s to probably both the most polarizing and the greatest fighter of the last 25 years or so, Floyd Mayweather. The two fights that Showtime is replaying on Friday night, the first with Maidana, May 3rd, 2014, another Cinco de Mayo fight for us to discuss, uh, and then August 26, 2017 versus Conor McGregor. Those fights have a couple of things in common. They were both fights that looked like mismatches on paper and turned out to be in very different ways and to different degrees more competitive than we expected. And they were both fights that showcased Floyd's occasional willingness to fall behind early, adjust, let his opponent lose a little steam, and take over. Uh, So let's talk about that subject and the McGregor fight first, Kieran, because I'm curious for your take on this. To what extent did Floyd give the first few rounds away intentionally and if it was intentional to some significant degree, do you think his intention was more to carry McGregor and put on a show and give the fans some rounds or to wait for McGregor to tire himself out? In other words, what do you think was going on in Mayweather's head and, and how much of the apparent competitiveness of this fight was actually legit competitiveness? Yeah, I don't think there was really any legit competitiveness. Um, you know, it's interesting. Initially, so I was ringside at another fight that night, so I didn't see it live, and and assumed when I found out that it had gone a number of rounds that Floyd had just been carrying him. Um, but I'm not sure after rewatching it, I feel quite the same way about that. Um, you certainly give Connor the first couple rounds and credit to him for that. But I, I'm not so sure after rewatching it that this was a case of. Floyd giving them away to make Connor look good as much as it was what you've talked about. His penchant for being perfectly comfortable and confident in dropping an early round or two or three just so he can focus on getting his timing and, and the distance, understanding what the other guy was doing. And then once he's got all those things in place, then he'll come out and he'll neutralize that. And it seemed to me, rewatching it, that that's exactly what Floyd did. Um, I felt that after those first couple of rounds, it wasn't competitive at all. Floyd was completely in control. Um, 
I think I don't think it might have been him carrying him a bit, but I think it was more Floyd doing what Floyd does or did, particularly after he went to 147. You know, perfectly happy to you know be like a cat with a mouse, toy with his opponent, mm-hmm. and if an opportunity comes to finish him off, he'll he'll take it. Um, and if not, so be it. I think probably the difference here is that I, if I were to guess, I would say that Floyd went into this fully intending and expecting to stop McGregor, but he wasn't going to do anything stupid in pursuit of that goal. You know, I mean, from round three on, really, he was walking him down, which mm-hmm. he almost never did at 147. Um, and I think that once he got through those first couple rounds, filed away all the information he needed, he decided what he was going to do. I think he probably figured early on that McGregor wasn't going to have the stamina to stay on his feet and throw hands for 12 three-minute rounds. So he's going to walk him down, take what he threw, slowly turn up the pressure. And I think then once he had him dead to rights, he, he, he was all set, always going to turn it up to finish it off. I, I, I think there is an element in there that he didn't want people to think it was an entirely embarrassing one-sided thrashing. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of suspect that this was one fight that he really didn't want to be taken the distance. I think he probably wanted to set it up in such a way that when he was ready to take him out, he, he would he would take him out. My suspicion is that if Floyd would have scripted this in advance, it would have been awfully like the way it turned out. Um, and that it's easy for me to say I wasn't in the ring, but I feel as if this probably went pretty much how Floyd wanted it and expected it to go would be my guess. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you on this. I I think the way that he fought for the first three rounds or so was 100% intentional. There was no part of him that couldn't cope with what McGregor was doing. Um, Although it's important to note he was 40 years old. I think mm-hmm. the game plan might have been different if Floyd hadn't been an aging, retired fighter who yeah. had some questions about whether he needed to pace himself and maybe some questions about how explosive he could still be. I, I basically, what I'm saying is I don't think he gives away quite this many rounds in his prime. Maybe, you know, In his prime, maybe it's more like one round of, let me see what this chump has. That makes sense. And then he gets aggressive and takes over. But yeah, I, I'm with you that... I don't think this fight was ever actually competitive, even though McGregor was probably up 30 to 27 on points. Uh, Even at that point, he was still an absolute no-hoper to win. Yep. Which brings up an enduring angle surrounding this fight. It remains a go-to example of maybe the easiest money in sports betting history, as long as you were willing to to part with a large chunk of money temporarily in order to collect a 20% or so return on investment after the fight. The betting handle on this fight was insane because MMA fans and casual sports fans didn't understand that Connor had no prayer in a boxing ring and and they thought betting $100 to win 300 or so was a worthwhile sweat. <laughs> and actual sharp bettors with big bankrolls were eager to get down as much as they could on Mayweather, uh, who was, you know, realistically, what, about 98% guaranteed to win? Yeah. Uh, and he was priced at only about 5 to 1. You just never see value like that where public money gives sharp money such positive expected value. So people reference this fight all the time when talking about like the the easiest money they ever made sports betting. Um, Two other quick notes on this fight in terms of things for viewers to watch for on the replay. One, count the number of times McGregor throws illegal punches. Yes. <laughs> either either hammer punches with like the butt of his hand or or hitting Floyd from behind when he's turned around. I, I say make a drinking game of that if you want. <laughs> um, and the second thing, it's not a great fight, but it's definitely fun to watch Floyd flip the switch and start walking forward, yeah. uh, which, as you said, he, he started doing it to a degree after about the third round, but then he really started doing it aggressively in the seventh. Uh, that's that's where it just becomes a show. You know, we didn't see 
Mayweather marching opponents down all that often in his career, but the results when he did do it suggest yep. he could be kind of a beast when he wanted to. Yes. Uh, but you know, in this case, of course, it was against a tiring foe and and a hopelessly overmatched foe. So maybe it it, it didn't really prove much, but it's still fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so whatever one's feelings are on the extent to which you know Mayweather was letting McGregor win rounds or whatever his rationale was for doing that. When he struggled three years earlier against Maidana, I don't think there's any debate there. Uh, Maidana's awkward, aggressive style was making Floyd uncomfortable, at least for a while. But again, as he did against McGregor, as he did against Zab Judah and Oscar De La Hoya, and one or two other times at least in his career, he made adjustments, controlled the second half of the fight, and kept that unbeaten record. Um, watching this back, watching Mayweather Maidana won back, what stood out to you about this performance from Mayweather? And again, what should viewers look for, whether they're watching it on Friday for the first time or just for the first time in six years? A few things. Uh, first, this was a legitimately close, tough fight. Um, I don't really see the case for Mayweather losing it, but right. I'd say other than the two Castillo fights, and I'm saying both of them because even the second one was close, even if it was clear that Floyd won. Other than those two, I think this was the next closest 12-round distance fight of Floyd's career. I think Maidana won four of the first five rounds, so Floyd had a real uphill battle here. Um, but I think, you know, this is a case where you want to pay close attention to both guys in this one. Maidana fought a hell of a fight. He was so relentless, and I don't think it had anything to do with Floyd's legs getting old or anything like that. He just, for the first five rounds, he he pretty much perfected the things Castillo did successfully and Cotto did successfully, putting pressure on Floyd without being too worried about the counterfire and adding in extreme awkwardness and this right hand that dropped down from an absurd angle. So it legitimately took Mayweather five rounds to figure out how to combat Maidana while also waiting for him to slow down just a little, not quite have the energy to rush in and throw 100 punches around anymore. Um, And the big thing to watch for in terms of what Floyd did brilliantly was how he fought moving backward. There are so few fighters in history who could actually produce an effective offense while moving backward, but Floyd was one of them. And against Maidana, he was able to throw that counter hook and to throw good jabs while taking a little step back and keeping the distance he wanted. This fight is half of a pressure fighting lesson from Maidana and half of a boxing lesson from Floyd in terms of things to to watch for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the notes that I sort of made are that, you know, Maidana did, in many respects, everything right. He fought exactly the way that everyone had always said you should fight against Floyd. Mm -hmm. Throw punches from all angles and hit him everywhere. That's the important thing. (laughs) Uh, Whether it's borderline legal or not, just hit him. (laughs) Like, don't don't go for that head. Just body, arms, shoulders, hips, wherever. Um, Make life extremely difficult for for him. And even after doing all of that, um, you know, even as we we said that, that Mayweather in the past would happily give up rounds, Mayweather, he didn't give them up against Maidana. Maidana took them from him. And even after doing that, still, even after forcing Mayweather into places he would clearly have preferred not to go, he still couldn't beat him, even after fighting what in many respects was the perfect fight against Floyd Mayweather. And I agree with you. I don't see a case at all. And I remember when I saw it the first time, I didn't see a case at all for Floyd losing this fight. I don't see a case draw. I think the 116, 112, or 115, 113 cards were fine. Um, But we just grade Floyd fights on a curve. And a legit 115, 113, 116, 112 fight against Floyd is a big achievement. (laughs) Um, It's just that you know, I think one of the things that this fight showed for me is that I think one of the things for which he, Mayweather's rarely given enough credit. I mean, you talked about how good he is going backwards, but also 
because he was so often dominant, and especially at, at 147, seemingly risk-averse, he was a brave fighter, Floyd Mayweather. When Miguel Cotto bloodied his lip, he sat in the corner and smiled because he knew he was in a fight. When Shane Mosley rocked him hard, he just cleared his head and then came back and went on the attack and won the final minute of that round. You know, And against Diego Corrales, he stood right in the pocket and took him to pieces. It's just that he rarely had to show it. And Floyd showed in this fight that, okay, you're on, you're on me? Fine. We'll... I'm going to get a little bit of space, but we'll fight in the pocket and I'll find the right punches to beat you with. And that's what he did. It was one of his more uncomfortable wins, perhaps his most uncomfortable win, but I think one of his better ones because of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's go back to the topic I mentioned at the start of the conversation about these fights being unexpectedly competitive. These were fights most people, or, or at least most boxing people, MMA fans might've felt differently. Uh, but these were fights we had no expectations for going in. And then for a few rounds, at least, you wondered if the upset could happen and you ended up more entertained than you expected to be. So I'll ask you to dig into your mental Rolodex, Kieran. Do you have an all-time favorite example of a fight that fits that description? And I'm not talking about a fight that ended in an upset. Obviously, Tyson Douglas or Joshua Ruiz were fights that looked like mismatches to one degree or another, and most people were very wrong about the result. I'm talking about a fight where the favorite still won, but it was a memorably dramatic close fight. Do you have one, or or maybe two or three, if you'd prefer to include some runners-up, uh, that, that stands out in your mind? So the one that comes immediately to mind, and probably because we've just been talking about him, is Marcus Maidana and, that, and his majority decision win over Eric Morales in April 2011. Mm, good one, And yeah. realizing that that was that long ago, by the way, made me briefly depressed, <laughs> I can tell you. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, like Maidana was coming off a very close loss to Amir Khan, in which he battered Khan down the stretch. Um, it was just a few fights removed from making Victor Ortiz quit. Morales had actually retired in 2007, come back in 2010. He'd won a couple of fights, but he didn't look great. I think the consensus going in was that Maidana might decapitate him. Um, but although Morales did lose, and I think clearly did lose, yeah. he's proved that he had one last great night in him, you know, despite, you know, obviously suffering a horrible looking injury. And he pushed Maidana to the brink. So that was the one that came to mind. And then I thought around for a couple. One that comes to mind, but I mentioned with a little bit of trepidation because it was before my time, and I'm just assuming that the winner was the big favorite going in, but I don't know for certain, what, and you may well know better either yourself or from talking to Bill or, or Nigel about this, uh, George Foreman's win over Ron Lyle in January 1976. Um, mm. I, I say I assume Foreman was the favorite because he was Foreman, but his most recent official fight 15 months previously had been the loss to Muhammad Ali, and then his only appearance since then, he'd had this slightly farcical five fights in a night exhibition in Toronto. So right. maybe he wasn't such a big favorite. I, I don't know, but obviously a hell of a fight. And no matter how entertaining you thought Foreman Lyle was going to be, I bet it turned <laughs> out to be more entertaining than you thought it was going to be. And then the other one that comes to mind, certainly not quite on a Foreman Lyle scale, was Evander Holyfield, Burt Cooper in 91. Um, and mm. I think Cooper was... What, the third choice opponent for Evander at that point? First right. of all, it was going to be Mike Tyson, and then Tyson had the rib injury, and then the Desiree Washington thing. And then I think Francesco Damiani was supposed to be his opponent, and he pulled out, and they dragged Cooper out from nowhere. And Cooper recovered you know, from, I think, a first-round knockdown to at least officially score a knockdown against Evander in the third or so um, before being stopped in the seventh. So um, 
once I started to think about it, I realized there were quite a few more. <laughs> so I'm sure you've got some that I probably missed. Yeah, none of none of the three that I thought of overlap with yours, which is interesting. And the, the ones you mentioned, I didn't even uh, didn't didn't cross my mind, but they're all perfect examples. And uh, yeah, Bert Cooper had had Evander out on his feet for a second there in, in that fight. And uh, George Foreman had to have been favored against Ron Lyle. Right? How big a favorite, I'm not sure. But yeah. uh, but he was certainly the favorite there. So um and I, I should say before I mention mine that I, I know I'm going to forget something here since, uh, you know, you just came up with three good examples that I forgot. So uh, we'll open it up to the listeners that if you yeah. guys think of a great example we should have thought of, hit us up on Twitter. I'm curious uh, what both of us forgot. But the first three that came to my mind after thinking about this for just a few minutes, I think maybe the all-timer here is an example that's that's somewhat old school and it's before my time as a fight fan. So I can't tell you what I thought going in, sort of like your Foreman Lyle example. But in terms of the general school of thought, Salvador Sanchez versus Azuma Nelson, I yeah. think is a perfect example. You know, great champion, unknown challenger, assumed to be a safe defense. And it turned out Nelson was much better than most people realized and, and pushed Sanchez to the limit. Um then for two examples since I've cover, been covering boxing, one very recent example, I thought you might go with this one, 2019's Fight of the Year, Inoue versus Nonito Denaire. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, we were legit worried about Nonito. We yep, didn't really want this fight to happen. It turned out to be great. And uh, the other, going back to 2014, a Showtime fight, uh, I figured that Lucas Matisse was going to give John Molina a beatdown. Excellent call. Yeah, yes. eventually he did kind of give him a beatdown, but it was one hell of a fight along the way. I had no idea how tough a challenge Molina was going to present in that matchup. Yeah, excellent call. Yes, very much. Now that you've brought those two up that are extremely obvious, there are. you're right. There must be tons out there that we weren't thinking about. It took me a little while to think of one. And then once I thought of one, I thought of three. And right. then there you are with those. So yes, definitely do write into us with others that we've clearly missed. Um, all right, let's end this conversation about Floyd uh, with the question that you asked me last week about Keith Thurman. Give me your all-time top three fights that you would show to somebody who, the one person in the world who's never seen a Floyd Mayweather fight, that would give them the best possible picture of what Mayweather was all about as a boxer. All right, one of these was easy for me. One one is an instant answer, and that's January 20th, 2001, KO10 yep. over Diego Corrales. Yep. That is peak of his powers, Mayweather. That is, oh, this guy is the best in the world. Uh, even though few were ready to elevate him to number one pound for pound yet, uh, I think it's clear looking back yep. he was. Um, that's just, you know, you want to show what he was capable of against an A-level opponent. This is the fight. The other two are kind of tougher. Depends what you like. But if the goal is to give people a snapshot of Floyd's ability against good opposition while also entertaining them somewhat, I think the other two I'd include are the 2010 win over Shane Mosley and the 2012 win over Miguel Cotto. The Mosley fight is the one where Floyd is in against a dangerous guy, a future Hall of Famer, and he gets hurt, really hurt. And he yep. guts it out, and he gets aggressive, and he walks Mosley down and dominates the rest of the fight. It is, in its own way, maybe his finest performance. Mm -hmm. I'd still say the Corrales fight is, but th there's a case, at least, for the Mosley fight. And then Cotto, again, he's in fairly tough against a future Hall of Famer, and it's just a good, hard, entertaining 12-round fight. It's certainly not typical Floyd. Like, I could have included the Marquez fight or the Canelo fight to just show somebody Floyd boxing his way to a dominant decision. 
But those are kind of dull fights. If I want to show his greatness without it being boring, I'm going Corrales, Mosley, and Cotto. How about you? Yeah, good good calls. Good calls. Agree with you. Corrales is easy and obvious. So uh-huh. I also picked that one. Um, and I thought hard about the other two because, you know, he has a pretty, uh, a pretty good resume there to pick from. So I was trying to think of something that would show some variety. So I'm going to throw the Victor Ortiz fight in there because it showed, first of all, that Floyd could just be a total bastard when he wanted to be, <laughs> and that he also just really didn't give a shit um, because of the way that he he had no hesitation in finishing that fight. Um, and also because the mind games in the build-up were just masterful. From the final press conference, I remember him noting at the time that it was just masterful the way that Floyd... At the final press conference, Victor Ortiz had created this whole thing about how he'd separated from like a violent father and all of this kind of stuff. And Floyd at the final press conference just goes, yeah, it's not true. None of that stuff you said about your dad is true. None of that stuff you said about your childhood is true. And I'm going to bring your dad to the fight. And you could just see Victor Ortiz's <laughs> face like, oh, crap. And then at the weigh-in, Floyd just grabbed Ortiz by the throat and Ortiz didn't respond. Right. And you knew then that I mean, it's extending, you know, a, a little bit. It's not just about the fight. It's about the whole fight experience. But that, I think, showed that one of the very other, sometimes underrated aspects of Floyd is he was really smart. And he also knew what buttons to push. And, and the third one, again, the choice is so hard. I'm going to take Gatti. Um, it was Floyd's first pay-per-view main event, I think. I think um, you're right, yeah. Um, and, I, and I think it was perhaps one of the first times that he was able to show the sheer gulf in class between Floyd Mayweather and other very, very good fighters. That th- This was a guy, there were people who thought that Gatti had a real shot going into that fight. Um, and he just completely dominated him and took him apart. And uh, not a good night for Arturo. Um, and also, and I'm sorry to bring that up, but, um, but you brought up his, his victory over Cotto, so near. Um, <laughs> and the fair. other thing is, Floyd's reaction at the very end of it. Uh, showed that for all the, you know, facade that he put up, he cared. He cared a lot about winning. He cared a lot about about the success. He cared a lot about being great. Uh, he was quite emotional at the end of it, after, uh, initially after winning it. And I think, to me, that, that whole, oof, that, that collection shows a sort of broadness, if you will, a breadth, rather, of mm-hmm. of the good and bad that Mayweather could bring to a fight. Yeah, those are good choices, and uh, somehow you managed to uh, get this uh, this first-time Floyd viewer to see three knockout victories by, by Floyd, which is <laughs> oh, yeah, not, not easy to do. Um, <laughs> but, but no, I like those choices, and uh, I would say to the first-time Floyd viewer, when you watch the Ortiz fight, stick around for the post-fight interview. It's oh, yes, it. exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right, so uh, those are our takes on some of the highlights of the incredible boxing career of Floyd Mayweather. What do you say we get a third opinion on all this? A splendid idea. Um, Yeah, let's uh, get to talk to us now about the life and career of Floyd Mayweather. Uh, Let's get someone who followed and reported on virtually the entirety of it. Uh, Life and career, in fact, uh, as a reporter on sports in general, boxing in particular, and the Mayweathers especially for the Grand Rapids Press and MLive.com. And I always suspected that he was one of the smarter guys ringside and he's proved it by leaving the cesspit of boxing behind entirely in favor of a quiet life in retirement um david mayo old friend thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the showtime boxing podcast hey thanks karen good to be with you good to talk with you again 
Likewise. Hey, look, before we get into anything related to Floyd or boxing at all, um, over the last couple months, whenever we have a guest, we start off with a basic health and welfare check. So um, how are you doing? How are you well? Is your family well? And I know you're down in Oklahoma these days. So uh, what is the present situation like down there in the Sooner State? Well, I don't think people here uh, adhere as much to the social guidelines as they should. Um, since the subject came up, I mean, it's, uh, I don't see, I was at a Walmart yesterday. They might have been 30 people wearing masks. Uh, 30% of the people were wearing mm. uh, masks. Uh, it, uh, I don't think they take it as seriously in rural areas because they think they're, they're naturally socially distanced. <laughs> <laughs> and that works fine until you show up at a basketball gym or a church. So, right, uh, right. it's, uh, yeah, I have a, I have a 1600 square foot garden out there and the food supply really dr does dry up. So I guess that's what I've been doing <laughs> so far this spring, <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise doing well and, and, you know, able to sort of write it out so far. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, I, 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 staying socially distant from Okies isn't that difficult for me. Um, so it's kind of, I think I've already resumed normal activity in that regard. Yeah, no, I, we're, we're making it. My family, my, my parents are 82 and 85 years old and they're, they're staying away, staying, staying inside. And, uh, I'm trying to protect them as much. I'm trying to protect myself. Good. Good. Okay. All right, so now let's talk some boxing. And I, I want to go back to the beginnings of your relationship with Floyd Mayweather. I believe you've covered him and known him since his amateur days. Uh, so what are your earliest memories of Floyd? And, and how early on did you sense you were watching an all-time great in the making? Well, I had covered Roger uh, and, and Jeff. So I actually met Floyd before he ever had an amateur fight. Uh, hmm in the gym. He was, it was a few months before he was 10 years old, uh, 1987. And, uh, he, he had his first bout later that, that same year. And it was evident immediately that, uh, that he had, uh, unusual skills for a 10 year old. He was, <laughs> he was, a, uh, he was as sharp then as he was, you know, five or six, six years later when he won his first national golden gloves, you could already see it. It's, but you don't know how a 10 year old is, is, going to react to success and and all the things that go along with it so it was obviously the obvious that he was tremendously skilled and it was unusual to uh to meet a guy who rose to those levels uh you know before he ever actually participated in his sport and then cover all his championships fights it was it was uh, unusual in that respect usually of course we identify outstanding athletes then begin to cover them not the other way around Right. right. But just in, and in terms of the fact that he went on to have a career where, you know, people make a case that he's the best ever to do it or, or, or at least one of the very best. Was there was there a particular point where it dawned on you that that's the level of talent and uh, achievement you were looking at? I know a guy who uh, a couple of guys, one one bet the other. Uh, 50 bucks that he would win an Olympic gold medal and 50 bucks he'd win more than one world championship, which was kind of audacious right. when he was 16 years old. And <laughs> yeah. he ended up splitting the bets. So yeah. <laughs> I, think it was, I think everybody in Grand Rapids uh, who saw him understood early that there were, he was something different. He was the only other amateur I saw who really compared uh, to him that I ever saw live was Roy Jones Jr., who was just mm. dominant. Uh, uh, with the exception of what happened to him in the Olympics as well. But uh, I thought Mayweather stood out. You know, he, he was the golden boy, the, the most 
valuable boxer of his of the of the Golden Gloves uh, right off the bat. His first open division amateur fight was in the National Golden Gloves. He never even he went there when he was 16 years old and never had an amateur open wow. bout because there was no one in his weight division in Michigan that year. So his first five bouts were were in the National Golden Gloves. And of course, he fought Eric Morrell last. Ended up being his Olympic teammate, and uh, you could tell right then he was he was tearing up grown men who'd been at it for a lot of years. Right. Uh, we uh, we talked to uh, Leonard Ellaby recently, and and one of the things we asked him was whether the whole money may persona that emerged you know during the first twenty four seven was really Floyd or whether it was you know like a like a wrestling persona to to sell pay per views. Leonard insisted Floyd was never putting on an act that we always saw the real thing. Um, but I think you saw sides of Floyd that most of us in the media didn't. So, so what's your take on that? How much of what we saw of Floyd was an act, or at least an extreme amplification of the real Floyd? Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely was the latter. I mean, it, uh, he knew what he was, what, what people perceived him to be, and, and he, he knew that uh, the more over the top he went with it, the more some people would go with him. I do think, you know, he's an... He's a narcissistic, extremely proud, extremely self-confident guy. So to say that that it was all an act uh, would not be true either, because he always believed that uh, that greatness was his destiny, and then he went out and he did it. So uh, you know, I don't think you, I don't think you do anything on that level uh, without a, a great deal of ego and, and self-confidence. So I, I, you know, a lot of it was uh, was over the top and put on. Uh, he, he knew when the lights were on and he knew when they were off. He knew when someone was watching him train, when someone wasn't, uh, he was, he's always aware of what's going on around him. And, uh, so, uh, you know, it's part of the act, but like Leonard said, there's a lot of that too. And, uh, we've all run into it even in dealing with him personally. I've, <laughs> you know, it's not always been great. He's kicked me out of the gym. He's hung up on the phone. Uh, he's had years he wouldn't talk to me. So, uh, it, it was never always easy. I mean, after the second Madonna fight, he threatened to fire Leonard. So Leonard can attest to the fact that it's, it's not always rosy with the guy either, but, uh, but you know, he, he backed up. So that's why we're having this conversation years later. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned, uh, his, the, the second Madonna fight, uh, what, one of the fights that Showtime is, is replaying on Friday is the first Madonna fight, uh, which was an unexpected struggle. And, and one of the very few fights in Floyd's career that anyone can even begin to make a case for him losing, uh, how surprised if at all, were you by how hard that fight was for Floyd? And do you believe that he lost any of his 50 fights? I actually didn't. I didn't have him losing either that fight or uh, the Castillo fight or the Delaware fight or the Alvarez fight. Um, all, the, all the fights that were not unanimous. Um, you can say I'm a homer or whatever, but I had him win. <laughs> went winning all the fights. Okay. Uh, the thing. The thing about that fight, I don't think. You know, Madonna was a guy who was willing to throw awkward shots from distance and wade in and and accept the return fire in exchange uh for delivering his and when when floyd fought a guy like that that's what that's the style that could cause him the most trouble if you were just a, a technician well-schooled and you brought your marquee to queensberry rule book into the <laughs> ring with you he was going to tear you to pieces because he could deal with the technically sound guy who whose actions he could completely predict and 
Madonna was a little, you know, freewheeling guy. He wasn't like that. So I think, I think even Floyd knew that this was a guy who was, who could cut the ring off and, and cause him problems if he had a good night. And he did have a pretty good night. I mean, but, you know, at that time there was a debate over whether it was going to be Khan or Madonna in the fight. I think Floyd had an, an online poll where he allowed people to vote and they actually That's voted right. for him to fight Khan. And so there was some question about who the fight was even going to be against. They had the, the dispute over the gloves and Floyd threatened to pull out of the fight the night before because uh, he wanted he wanted uh, Madonna to wear a specific brand of Reyes of Everlast gloves and Madonna balked. Uh, they finally got it squared away, but there was there was just a lot of a lot of uh, upheaval and little things like that. He gets cut in the fourth round of the fight, and uh, they switch chief seconds in the middle of the fight. Uh, it, it was and, and it, you know Pernick's scorecard, Michael Pernick's scorecard, ultimately uh, gave him a reason to do it again, and and I think he was happy to do it the second time because he could. He could get off to a quicker start against the guy once he had a feel for him, and it it filled a void where it wasn't really certain who that second fight of 2014 was going to be anyway. But uh, you know there was a lot going on with upheaval in the corner in both of those fights, and uh, outside the ring there was some mess going on with uh, him and again Leonard Ellerby. They were on the outs for a while, so there was a lot going on around the fight. But uh, but uh, again he came through it. You look at Floyd's, you know, record, and it's, it's got some a list of really impressive names on it. And yet, despite that, at least you know, in the latter part of his career, there were those who would sometimes say that he was almost as good of a matchmaker as he was a boxer. You know, that he took on Canelo mm-hmm. maybe before Alvarez was ready. That he faced the likes of Pacquiao and Cotto after they were in their prime. He never faced the Vernon Forrest or Paul Williams. Did, how do you feel about that argument? And is there anyone think, who didn't fight who you look back and say, damn, I really wish he fought that guy? You know what? I mean, at the end of the day, most of the guys, if you say Kasamai were afraid of even going back to the 130-pound days, they eventually devalued themselves. Um, you know, the Margarito was a, a hot topic at, a, at one time. Yep. Uh, I, think, I think a number of things happened in Floyd's career that <laughs> led him down that, that road. I, I think the restrictive first contract he had with had with uh, showtime's competitor um kind of uh kind of set him off a little bit on uh being a, a he protected himself he wanted to protect the contract he, he knew that contract was voided if he lost and he himself would be devalued so uh and he was fighting basically guys from within top rank stable so uh he kept that as uh as lightly competitive as it could be during the terms of that contract till he could get out of it. Then when he fought De La Hoya and he was the B side in everything in money and the size of the ring, he was forced to wear gloves. He didn't want to wear, uh, forced up to a weight. He didn't want to fight at, uh, after the Hatton fight that same year in his brief retirement, he decided he was going to do everything he could to make it uncomfortable on the other guy. So, the other guy's going to have to come to his weight. The other guy was going to have to fight in his gloves. Uh, even the first fight after the comeback against Marquez, he didn't make his own catch weight yeah. and paid 600 K to, to Marquez to buy him off. So he, he set Marquez on a, a series of rules that he didn't follow himself. Um, but, but I think once the Delahoya fight happened and he won it and he became the A side in every fight, he, 
he did everything he could to make it on as uncomfortable as he could on everyone he fought. Uh, even at that time of his career, when he really wasn't being as, uh, as selective maybe in his opposition. I mean, later in his career, you know, you get Cotto, you get Canelo, you get Pacquiao, even if it was delayed, you know, he, he fought the big fights. He didn't get Hatton at 140, but he, he fought that took care of that business later. So despite the fact that, you know, they're, you know, if you don't, you don't fight like a Sugar Ray Robinson a couple hundred times when you only get 50 shots at it in your whole career, uh, there's going to be some unfinished business maybe on the table, but most of the guys who could have made an argument, uh, were devalued themselves at some point or Floyd devalued them himself. Right. I, I want to take a pause from uh, talking about Floyd Mayweather for a moment to just shine the spotlight on uh, what a professional David Mayo is that on the Showtime podcast, he has the restraint <laughs> to say Showtime's competitor. Uh, and uh, that, that's true professionalism. There are no restrictions on being able to say the, the, the word HBO on this podcast, but I still appreciate the way you bent over backwards there. Well done. <laughs> well, they aren't competing with you, with you in the boxing realm anymore anyway. So. Exactly. Yep. Um, so, uh, we're just a few days removed from Cinco de Mayo, uh, which uh, I'm, I'm now being told is not a celebration of David Mayo. Uh, it has something to do with the month of May. Uh, just just learned that. Anyway, uh, Cinco de Mayo started out as a fight weekend built around Mexican fighters, but Floyd took it over for, for many years, uh, not necessarily even against Mexican or Mexican-American opponents. And he set all sorts of pay-per-view records on that date. Looking back, how remarkable do you find Floyd's accomplishments as a draw, as a moneymaker, given that he didn't have a built-in Latino fan base or big regional fan base and, and wasn't even an especially exciting boxer? You know, that, that's, that's really a good question. And I, I don't know. I guess it's, it's the people get consumed by an aura or a mystique mm-hmm. or something. He, he wasn't the most exciting guy to watch. He wasn't going to knock anybody out unless you Victor Ortiz against him or something. <laughs> he, he he just, I mean, he he wasn't going to go out there. And particularly in the second half of his career, he was a really dull guy to watch the first four rounds of a of a fight because he would give them away just like he did against Madonna, and it almost came back to bite him when he got cut, and it would have gone to the scorecards if it gotten stopped. Uh, you know, he, he just wasn't a thrilling guy, but he was a thrilling personality, I think. 24-7 in all access uh, kind of uh, elevated him uh, to a status that, that he probably wouldn't have enjoyed otherwise. And he won the big fights. There wasn't a lot else going on other than Pacquiao at the time as far as pay-per-view draw. And uh, and I don't know. I guess it's just a, a combination of things he just took off. Plus, you know, he, he'd had a body of work by then. People wanted to see him lose, so you'd, yeah. you'd buy it either way whether you believed in him or hated him. Uh, and it, it was just a, and he was a social media genius. I don't think that, uh, I don't, you know, he was, he was the first really social media created almost fighter. Um, and he used that to, to great effect. I, I, I think that gets overlooked hmm. sometimes that and the ability Floyd had to take a punch because at any point, a chop, chop Carly or a Jesus Chavez <coughs> or a, a Shane Mosley, who tagged him with shots that might have gotten somebody else out of there? Never did. One loss would have changed the whole equation. Right. Which, so from, by the way, if I can add too, I yeah. think it was the one thing we were we were deprived of in Floyd's career is seeing him come back from a loss. I think you learn about a fighter most after he 
loses the first time and has to come back from it. We never got to see that. Yeah, there's that school of thought, isn't there? That in some ways it would have been better for Floyd's career if that first Castillo decision had gone against him and he then wouldn't have that zero to, to carry and he might have been a bit more free. Do you, do you go along with that? Mm, I'm not sure I do. I, I think it was I think it was so much of it. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I, he ever gets the De La Hoya fight if he loses to gotcha. Castillo. Right. Um, maybe it's almost like saying this would have happened in a baseball game if this would have happened. Well, no, yeah. it wouldn't happen because if that had happened, the fielders would be in a different spot and the pitch would have been right. different and would, it would have been a different, everything changes the whole deal. Yeah. So I think, I think the whole, uh, the whole career arc would have adjusted dramatically if he'd lost the first Castillo mm. fight. But it's interesting, I guess, uh, then looking at that first Castillo fight and sort of saying that we never got to see how he would respond to a loss. If you sort of think of that as he had a fight that some people thought he lost and he had to prove something in the rematch. We we didn't quite get the answer to the question, how does he respond to a loss? But we got the answer to the question, how does he respond to a fight close enough to have arguably been a loss? And he came back and fought the guy again and did a little better the next time. So... Yeah, maybe we got a hint of the answer, but we certainly never, never got that. You know, how does he respond to getting knocked out or, or something like that? Right. And yeah, and and I think even even as pertains to Madonna, you saw sort of the same thing. The only other rematch mm-hmm. in his career, mm-hmm. but that fight was completely different the second time. Floyd didn't give away the first four or five rounds in the rematch. He went out and took the first eight and then coasted down the stretch. And uh, uh, complete, fight was completely different when given a, a second chance against the same guy, but. Uh, I, I don't know that really that many people actually thought Madonna won the first fight, even though Pernick had he, had it had it scored even. Um, I just I just thought the Madonna fight and the Castillo fight, both 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 occasions when he had a rematch, he showed how much different he could be once he'd been in with a guy once. Mm. So I'm twenty plus years close to 30 really of following floyd in and out of the ring any favorite stories that that you may have that you know nobody else might have sort of had any kind of uh access to any any particular things you look back on with pleasure yeah maybe a couple of things i remember uh i remember when he was training in in california for his the fight against carlos rios in 1999 it was in it was in grand rapids it was his first time fighting back home and uh and the the arena sold out in about 90 minutes and i was i was there at training camp that day and uh when he heard about it he, his eyes lit up he said i'm selling tickets like puff daddy. <laughs> and, and, and you know of course it's 1999 puff daddy was was uh what he went by then right (laughs) you know on the on the a couple nights before the pacquiao fight i'll tell you an interesting story i think a couple of nights before the pacquiao fight it was a thursday night going into what would have been friday morning uh yeah about one o'clock friday morning the day before the fight um two nights technically before the fight right uh, he gets, he, I, I was at, uh, the guy who was his trainer, I'm trying to think of his name, had trained Pacquiao, Alex Ariza. Oh yeah. Uh, Ariza, Ariza had a house in, in Las Vegas and I was there and a couple other guys were there. Ben Thompson was there from fight height. And there was a guy who worked as a videographer for Pacquiao for a while. And 
Mayweather hired him away. There was a little bit of that going on before the fight where Mayweather was hiring away guys who had worked with Pacquiao to mess with him, mess with him in the head a little bit. At one, one o'clock in the morning, Floyd calls Ben Thompson and tells him to get in touch with Pacquiao and tell him that he'd watched him train at Chaparral High School that day. And he knew exactly how long he'd run. He knew exactly how long he'd been in the bathroom and that people were watching every movie made. <laughs> so the videographer texts Pacquiao. It's 1.15, in the morning now, less than 48 hours before opening bell. And uh, the videographer texts Pacquiao and, and with the information, with a, a clip of the video that they, sh- they had. Of course, everybody knew he was trained at Chaparral. You could have gotten the, the video if you tried hard enough. Uh, and he said, hey, watch your back, Manny. Uh, they're watching what you do. And within three minutes, here comes the phone blinking. Thanks, James. Pacquiao is up at one thirty in the morning on Friday, the day before the fight, responding to some goofy text. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it just, it was just Mayweather was always messing with somebody's head, whether it was, you know, before the Corrales fight about, uh, <clears throat> about the, the domestic right. stuff or, whether it was the Gaddy fight, whether he, when he interrupted the press conference at the Copacabana and ran Gaddy out of his own press conference. And here he was messing with Pacquiao's head via an intermediary that both knew less than 48 hours before they went into the ring. <laughs> wow, interesting. Um, all right, well, last thing, David. I, I know you're not on the boxing beat anymore, uh, but you still might have some insight here. Uh, Mayweather, at age 43, continues to tease a comeback. What do you think the chances are that he will fight again and, and risk that 50-0 and record? Um, unless he needs the money, I wouldn't think it's great at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have any, any insight on it, but uh, if he does take a fight, it wouldn't be a threatening fight. Uh, it wouldn't be a fight he could lose. He would try and uh, create an event, I think. Uh, but I just think there are enough ways that he can make money outside the ring uh, that he doesn't necessarily have to do this again. I, I can't imagine he's broke, but I can't, you know, his, his father said 15 years ago, he'd be broke walking around the streets of Grand Rapids someday. And, and you'd have to blow through a lot of money to do it, but <laughs> yeah. he has a big lifestyle. And, uh, so unless he just something happened and he, and he lost all his money, uh, I can't imagine why he would, why he would risk everything he built to, to get one payday. But, Hey, I'm not, I'm not Floyd Mayweather. I'm not <laughs> right. motivated by the same things as you. Right. I, I just love that typical warm Floyd Sr., Floyd Jr. kind of thing there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it, was, it was a different relationship at different times. And, you know, whenever there was a rift between them, Floyd always seemed to come out with the trainer that he needed at that time, yeah. whether it was his father early in his career before he won the title or Roger after he needed to pick up his offense or after he went to jail and he came back and had got hit too much after in the Cotto fight, he switched back and went back with his more defensive minded father. Mm -hmm. He always ended up with a trainer that he needed at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, David, look, man, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's, it's been great to talk to you. Like I said at the top, it's been far too long. Uh, uh, always enjoyed uh, seeing you ringside, and it's great to chat to you here. And, and thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Well, I appreciate you guys jogging my memory on this stuff. It's a pleasure, <laughs> pleasure being with you.
All right. Thanks again to David. Really insightful, interesting stuff there. I've known David going back a little more than 20 years. He was a, a regular freelance contributor for The Ring when I was an editor there. But I've only actually spoken to him a handful of times. Most of our interactions were over email. So great to actually talk to him and, and check in and glad to hear he's doing well, or relatively well, given the current state of things uh, in retirement. Uh, okay, let's move on to the news, and uh, we'll start with the sad news. We mentioned a few weeks ago that Jimmy Glenn, legendary New York corner man and owner of the famed Jimmy's Corner Bar in Times Square, had contracted COVID-19, and on Thursday morning, he died at the age of 89. Glenn was an amateur boxer, uh, worked many corners, including that of former heavyweight champ Floyd Patterson late in Patterson's career, and operated the Times Square gym for 18 years in addition to running Jimmy's Corner. Kieran, I don't know how well you got to know Jimmy, uh, but I do know you had a fair few drinks at Jimmy's Corner and also filmed video segments there with Burt Sugar several years back. So uh, the whole boxing community is saddened by this, uh, of course, but, uh, but how's it hitting you personally? Yeah, look, I'm not going to pretend I knew Jimmy particularly well, but yes, I saw him often, um, said hello to him often. Um, I, I first, funny, I first started going to Jimmy's Corner long before I was in any way involved in boxing. I was part of a uh, Greenpeace team that was working on a new fisheries convention at the UN in 1993, and we stayed at a hotel just up the street on West 44th, and we would drink at Jimmy's Corner, and uh, and then of course years in later years, um, like basically anyone else who was ever in New York for a fight week or other boxing related business would be there a bunch uh, as you said shot some video there for hbo including one in which pacquiao and tim bradley like met jimmy and signed photos to be placed on the walls and, and of course our team you know uh, would, would shoot hey harold there with harold letterman over the course of several years um it was a wonderful place it was a real throwback it was surely the last remaining place within a stone's throw of times square where you could get a beer for just a few bucks um and beyond the bar you know jimmy was a gentle soul someone who you know was all about the best in boxing and you and you're right it's really felt as if this death for the boxing community like this is one too many it's felt that mm. way right it's yeah it's this this has been the one that caused the boxing world's shoulders to to slump and and caused it to shed a multitude of collective tears um you know and i think that says a lot about jimmy not just about the bar and the, what it meant to people but what he was as a person and you know you've i've heard the 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 tributes from former fighters like jamil mccline who, mm -hmm. who jimmy guided to that famous victory over michael grant and others and, and the love that a lot of people had for him so jimmy for everything you did in boxing as a cut man as a trainer as a teacher as a guide as a friend and yes as a bar owner may you now join your wife in the life beyond and rest in peace mm -hmm. all right the rest of the news thankfully is not about anybody being sick or dying although much of it does reflect the way COVID-19 is impacting the sport um we speculated the last couple of weeks about when semi semi-major fights in the U.S. will return this week Bob Arum told ESPN we are coming back in June with fights on ESPN and ESPN plus he's talking about fights without a live audience probably in Las Vegas so we've gone back and forth on this a little bit um are we back to thinking that maybe your June 15th over under date will prove a good line after all uh, yeah, maybe it's a, a little bit of a better line than it seemed to be last week, but uh, also consider Bob Arum's famous history <laughs> of, of lying and letting, then letting you know later that he was lying. So, I mean, we still need the Nevada Commission to okay it. It might happen in June, but it isn't ultimately up to Bob. I will say the UFC experiment on Saturday night seemed to be a success. 
if you can get access to enough tests and swabs and so forth, you can stage a good empty arena combat sports card. So, uh, yeah, June 15th, uh, looking like a decent line right now. Um, whether it's before or after June 15th, whenever the coast is clear for boxing to return, one thing we shouldn't expect, based on an interview Gennady Golovkin gave Sports Illustrated's Greg Bishop, is the third Canelo Triple G fight right out of the shoot. Golovkin says he still intends to make a mandatory defense against Camille Zaramata first. And I get that in terms of if you haven't fought in a year, you might want to tune up for Canelo. Not to mention, it makes financial sense to stall the Canelo fight until it can have a live gate. That said, do you feel, Kieran, that Triple G's first concern should be the fact that the longer he waits and the older he gets, the more of an underdog he becomes? Yeah, very much so, actually. Um, look, I still haven't done a deep dive into into Zaramata, but if Glovkin's outing against Sergei Derevianchenko is any guide, um, the slow gradual decline in Triple G is becoming a steep one. Um, and he has very little time left at the top of the sport. But also completely agree with you. He, his perspective may be, if I've got to fight this guy who I absolutely hate a third time and who I think I've already beaten twice, it might as well be for the most possible money, by pay-per-view gay and a live gay. And until then, you know, I'm not going to do it. I understand that. Um, but it does also, I think, quite greatly increase the risk that he's going to get knocked off before that happens. So, yeah, yeah I, I definitely think in Golovkin's one definite case of somebody who re, whose career really does stand to be impacted by, by this big delay, I think. Yeah. All right. Another news regarding the sport, figuring out how to return during the time of coronavirus. WBC President Mauricio Suleiman hosted a video conference last week in which he said that the alphabet body is making plans for the return of boxing. Uh, Four fights on a card only, no more than 40 or so personnel on site, one handler per fighter, commission representatives, media, etc., etc., TV production. Uh, he said that champions would have flexibility in terms of defending belts, not least because of travel difficulties. Um, and he also said that WBC champions would not be pressured to fight. All perfectly reasonable, uh, atypically reasonable to this point. Um, a couple of things, though. I'm unclear what he means by one handler per fighter. Hopefully that sort of means a promotional representative or manager, not just one person in the corner. But um, I was kind of doing some math, actually. And if you've got like eight fighters and three people in the corner for each, assuming there's no doubling up, um, then you're already at like 32 out of your 40 people. So I don't know what he means by that. Um, the other thing is he said that as a part of this, judges would be scoring from home via video feed. Uh, here are the problems that I have with that. If you're worried about the safety of ringside judges, if that's your rationale for that, and I understand why you would be, then you should be at least as concerned about the safety of the referee. And if the fight's safe enough to have a referee and perhaps camera guys on the ring aprons, although it's entirely possible to have those cameras controlled remotely, then it's safe enough to have judges, I would have thought. Um, if it isn't safe enough to have judges, I wonder if it's even safe enough to have a fight. Um, travel should be less of an issue for judges and indeed for referees than for anybody else um, except the commission. Because if you're, if you're going to have fights in, say, Las Vegas, you're going to have Las Vegas-based officials. So it should be easy enough to get them from home to the arena and back again without having them interact with anybody else. But what really bugs me is what you're saying to the fighters is, we want you to take this risk. We want you to be prepared to expose yourself. 
But we're not prepared to do everything we possibly can to ensure that everything is as fair for you as possible. Because anybody who thinks scoring a fight on TV is any way as accurate an assessment as, as, as sitting on the ring apron has never watched their fight from the ring apron. Um, there's a reason we have judges sitting at ring aprons and not at home. You've done ringside scoring for TV broadcasts. And those TV networks thought it was worth the money to get you out there to sit ringside rather than just say, hey, Eric, can you watch the fight on TV and call us with how you're scoring it? Um, there's a reason for that. Um, it's a fundamentally different experience. You get a three-dimensional view ringside. You see things. You even hear things that you don't always see or hear even two rows back in the media section, let alone at home. You have different angles to work from. I think if boxing is to come back, we need fans and fighters to feel it's doing so with integrity. It's bad enough when we have controversial decisions from judges who are sitting right there. What's going to be the reaction when a judge turns in a bad scorecard from home and we don't even know if they were watching it with their pants on? Um, <laughs> you know, and it's bad enough to have them scoring via video. It's even worse to have them scoring from their couch. Are we going to have cameras on them to make sure they're focused appropriately? Look, all the judges I know personally are going to be as focused as they can, but all their setups are going to be different. Um, you know, and that's the deal with ringside scoring. Yes, they're on different sides of the ring, but they're sitting on identical stools at identical heights, identical distances from the corners. Is everybody's TV or monitor equally good? Uh, we don't. Is everybody's couch going to be equally good? We don't want them too comfortable. Um, <laughs> I know the danger of that, getting right? too comfortable on your couch. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, what happens if somebody else in the household is cooking during the fight and the fire alarm goes off? What if the dog bounds into the room and leaps into the judge's lap at a crucial moment? What if somebody's power goes out? What if it's just a really crap judge who's drinking beer or looking at his phone? It's not impossible. Um, if you're going to have them score it via video, which I don't think is a good idea, you should at least have them do it in a supervised environment in a studio where they're looking at different angles and you know that they're paying attention. Um, but I think that's probably going to expand the possible circle of infection more than if you just had them ringside in the first place. So, like I said, oddly atypically well-intentioned suggestions here from Suleiman, but I think this aspect of it is a bad one. Yeah, you, you make some valid points there, but uh, I have to say I had the exact opposite reaction to to this element of it. Um, and by the way, I'm in the minority, it seems, since I caught a video on ESPN.com with Andre Ward and Bernardo Osuna both weighing in and hating this idea as much as you do. Um, my feeling is the fewer people within spitting distance of the fighters, the better. And is ringside judging so good that we shouldn't mess with it? We have a, a century plus of evidence that having these judges sit at ringside and score a fight gives us mediocre results. I think to a certain extent, the argument that you have to do it live is a bit of a, because that's the way we've always done it argument, which is rarely a good reason. Before any of this COVID stuff, I heard people make the case that one judge should watch on a video monitor to get a different perspective uh, or that a judge seeing everything from just one side of the ring isn't an accurate perspective from which to assess a fight. That, that take existed before this. I say, yes, what you see on video is different, but it's not necessarily worse to get a variety of changing angles. I've always said that on TV, it's easier to tell what lands and what doesn't, whereas in person, you get a better sense of the power. It's a trade-off. Right. I can't believe I'm supporting a Mauricio Suleiman <laughs> initiative, um, but I'm perfectly fine with trying this. The, the idea of like the video feed going out, uh, yeah, it doesn't have to require a Wi-Fi connection. You know, they can be watching on the broadcast TV feed minus the commentary. Um, and, you know, how often do you lose the TV feed in the middle of a fight? Yeah, the, you're right. The power could go out. Something could happen. Hopefully 
these judges would set themselves up in, uh, you know, behind a behind a closed door where nothing can interrupt them. Um, I, I'm more than fine with experimenting this. Let's see if the judges screw it up any worse than they usually do. Um, but like, I, I think the commentators don't need to be at ringside, and the judges really don't either, uh, as long as diseases are, are in the air. Um, although, here's one counter argument to my argument. I wouldn't mind some of the older judges who are uh, losing their eyesight or their marbles yes. going away. Uh, not yes. to be ageist, but when I see the photos of the judges before the fight and one of them looks like Skeletor, it makes me nervous. So uh, if judges are going to remain at ringside, I would think commissions would rule out judges in high-risk groups. Yeah. So this might help to make the judging pool younger uh, if we didn't do the video judging thing. Uh, so I, I could support that part of it. Uh, but otherwise... I suspect letting judges score via video feed will work perfectly fine while slightly reducing the danger. So uh, me and Mauricio Suleiman, we're on the same page here. Wow. The first (laughs) time that we actually decide to have a difference of opinion and you decide, you know what? I'm going to throw my lot in with Mauricio Suleiman. Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling about that, buddy? I I, I need a shower. I definitely do. All right, uh, two last quick uh, news items to hit. Uh, First, Andy Ruiz has a new trainer. He will be working with Eddie Reynoso. Uh, No big surprise, given how friendly Ruiz and Canelo Alvarez are. We shall see if Reynoso can motivate Ruiz in a way that Manuel Robles could not for their last fight together. Uh, And then uh, there's a story that connects somewhat to our Mike Tyson discussion that we opened the podcast with. Uh, Here we are in 2020. And Oscar De La Hoya versus Conor McGregor is a thing that people are talking about. And we can credit slash blame our friend Brian Campbell, host of Morning Combat and the State of Combat podcast. For this, he interviewed Oscar, asked him about a hypothetical fight with McGregor. Oscar said he'd knock him out within two rounds, and Conor responded on social media, and it quickly blew up. And you know what? I doubt it'll happen, but... This fight could probably sell a lot of pay-per-views, in part because Oscar is 47 years old and hasn't fought in a dozen years, and there might be some real intrigue as to what would happen in a boxing match against McGregor at this point. I don't really want the fight to happen, but I'd definitely watch it if it did. Uh, so uh, are we going to have our second violent disagreement of the episode over this, Kieran? By the way, I think that says a lot about the standard well, the number of times to which we've actually ever differed with each other on a podcast that we're, <laughs> we're classing that discussion as a violent discussion. Oh, it was. Oh, yeah. That was Katie barred the door there. Blood was filled. Yes. Um, uh, I agree with you that in the present environment, and I say this with a heavy sigh, it probably would sell quite a few pay-per-views. Um, but less, so, you know, you sort of did the uh, uh, sort of connection there with the Tyson one, and it's a fair connection. But whereas I think probably <laughs> you could almost imagine people like wanting to watch Tyson fight when he's 70. Like you said, there's <laughs> something about Tyson in particular. that I, I don't know that it would have quite the same thing with Oscar, um, you know. Tyson still looks violent, even when he's, you know, got a big gray beard on and, and he, you know, he's, he's, thr- he's just throwing up pads. Oscar's old. He's chubby. He hasn't won a professional fight in 12 years. He hasn't scored a stoppage in 14. And there's actually, like, he doesn't have that same kind of aura right. of destruction about him that, that Mike has. So there is, I realized that it's actually been 17 years since Oscar scored back-to-back wins. And I've talked about this before, about how boxing keeps making me feel old. And when I realized that, I was like, holy crap. <laughs> um, I realized there's a whole new generation, Eric, of boxing fans 
that has never actually seen Oscar De La Hoya win back-to-back fights. Wow. Anyway, uh, so I guess I don't really know what I have to say about this. All, all I know is that it just means that, you know, for a lot of people, Oscar De La Hoya is just like a, a promoter who says stupid crap uh, rather than being a fighter. But yes, in the present environment, it would sell a lot of pay-per-views. I think it's just further evidence. You know what? Screw it. You're right. Let's whatever we whatever it takes. Let's have judges at home. Let's just get real fights <laughs> happening so that we're not talking about Oscar De La Hoya against Conor McGregor anymore. Maybe maybe this can bring our our two discussions together that this is the fight with which to experiment with judges yes. scoring it from home because who really cares what the outcome is? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, in fact, you know what? Let's give the old judges one last shot. Yes. You must be over 80 as you score yeah. this fight from home. Okay, yeah. we've, we've figured so, it out, Karen. Perfectly reasonable. Somehow, even after a quote-unquote violent disagreement, <laughs> we, we come to a mutually acceptable conclusion. Yeah. All right, that will do it for another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. I'm going to get a mop and clean up all this blood that's been spilled on the floor here. <laughs> um, our thanks again to David Mayo for joining us. Uh, remember, you can watch... Mayweather Maidana and Mayweather McGregor on Showtime this Friday or anytime after that on demand. Uh, next week, Showtime will replay two of the all-time great wins by fighters from uh, Great Britain. A Ricky Hatton's victory over Costa Zoo and Joe Calzaghe's dominant defeat of Jeff Lacey. So we will be discussing those fights and fighters on next week's podcast. We'll probably be looking around for a British person to be involved. I wonder where we can find one of those. <laughs> I, th- will... I think you might know somebody. Ah, we might be uh, we will also review the final two episodes of Monzon. And one thing I haven't talked about, Eric, I'm actually pretty excited to find out if Monzon beats this murder rap. <laughs> no spoilers. No spoilers, indeed. Until next time, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.